Wow, 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 wow. I've been thinking all week about, like, what the walk-up music should be for this episode. Oh, God. And in my head, it's, like, the beginning of that one, like, 90s song where he's like... Y'all ready for this? (laughs) (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) We didn't sign a contract before this. No, we did not. We did not discuss our hard limits. (laughs) Nope. We actually have also not signed a contract for our friendship, which um, apparently we should have based on what happened at Drunk Austin. So wait, do we need to say it out loud that we're equal partners, databates? <laughs> yeah. yeah, now All it's right. on tape. All right, there it is. A gentleman's agreement. We should introduce ourselves. I don't even know. Maybe I think, there's. I think we should. Yeah, ease it. Do it professional. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna <laughs> play it real straight this week. <laughs> Welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. I'm Sarah McLean. I write romances and I read them. And I'm Jen Prokop. I am a romance reader and critic. I'm also, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. I should also say I have given a lot of interviews about Fifty Shades of Grey yeah. over the last decade, and this is the first time that I've ever had a conversation about it in public, just cash. <laughs> So maybe we should tell, you know what might be interesting is to tell our Fifty Shades stories, because I'm going to tell you mine, which is... You um, start. Yeah, I'll start. It's a good one. So I, um, as everyone knows, have read romance my entire life. My son was born in 2003, and for those of you that have Kev had kids, you know that reading afterwards is really hard, right? So there was probably a pretty long period, and there's like sort of this... um, apocryphal story this is actually true he was about seven years old and some friends of ours came over with younger kids and they were like where's your son and I immediately I was like I don't know and then the immediate next thought was oh my god I I can read again Mm -hmm. like I had been waiting for that window where I didn't need to like be with him all the time because he was a baby and then I, I sort of felt like that moment is what made me realize like it was back So that was probably 2010 because he was seven. And what happened is I was working at a, I worked at my current school and we would go out every once in a while, just like some of the women I worked with or, or hang out at like someone's house and have drinks. And my coworker and 50 shades came up and my coworker, Pam was like, I read it. And I was like, yeah, I read a lot of romance, but I I haven't read that. And she gave me her copy Mm. and I came home and I am. Yeah, thanks, Pam. And I, um, and just, she kind of like, like, she was kind of like, I can't believe I'm doing this. But I was like, yeah, sure, I'd like, love to read it. And um, I don't think I read it right away. I don't think I read it right away. But it must have been a couple years after Wait, it came out. Wait, she gave you a print copy. Yes. And it was after it came out. Yeah, it was probably a couple years after it came out. My guess is, I don't actually really know exactly when I read it, because I'll be honest, it didn't really... I was like, it was Was it, right. like, already a big deal when you read it? It, it was a big deal, so it probably yeah. was 20... But it wasn't, like... Was it a big deal in the moment when you read it, or was it after the fact? I would say in the moment. Right, All like right. it so was it's something. 2012. It was. Yeah, a that's thing. my guess. That's my guess. Is it was 2012, and and I was like, sure. And you know what is really funny? I the only thing I remember from my first time reading it was thinking like, you know, romance has gotten hotter, and I think I like it. <laughs> I think a lot of people felt that way. Yeah, but that was it. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Pam. Thanks, Pam. <laughs> 
right. So my story is very different um, in that I was already writing romance when it yeah. happened. Um, so, okay, here's the deal. The Kindle explosion. So I wrote my first book in 2009. It was a YA novel. My second book came out March of 2010. My third book came out October of 2010. I was writing a lot faster then. Mm -hmm. And my fourth book came out May of 2011. 2011. So the, the numbers series, 9, 10, and 11, came out March, October, May. Then I was writing, then, like, I, it was, like, I don't know, a while, and then a, a Rogue Not Take, no, A Rogue by Any Other Name came out. The first book in the Casino series came out early 2012. So I had written three books, by the t- three romance novels, by the time Fifty Shades happened. And when it first happened, so just give, to give everybody a little bit of the history, because I feel like... Um, we're pretty far away. I want to just say from the start, like we're reading Fifty Shades 10 years after it came out. 10 years ago, I cannot stress enough how much literally all of us were being asked about Fifty Shades all the time. Like, yeah. you couldn't say to anyone anywhere that you were a romance novelist or that you read romance or that... You know, you were involved in the romance community without somebody wanting to talk to you about this book. There are a lot of reasons why, and I think we're going to get into them. But what I want to say is that in 2011, so the first Fifty Shades of Grey was released as an ebook from a publisher in Australia that is now known to be just like a group of friends who were hanging out. And like decided yeah. they were going to put out these books as pub- like publish these books. Publisher in Australia in May of 2011. And that was the first time you could buy them in E. At the time, nobody was reading it in print. Like they were reading right. it in E because everybody had just bought their first Kindle. Like I was reading Fifty Shades on the Kindle, my first Kindle, which I got for Christmas of 2010. Um, so when we talk about this as a juggernaut and we're going to talk about it, we're going to talk about the history and sort of unpack a lot of the book during this episode. But I need to say over and over again that you cannot discount timing. I'm always going to come back to timing on this book, why it worked, why it was so huge and timing. So I read it because it was my job to read it, because I was a romance novelist. I, too, wanted to sell 150 million copies of something. And everybody was talking about Fifty Shades in and out of the community. It was a hot button text in the community. It was the book everybody associates with romance novels then and now still, I think. We still hear. I was on a panel three nights ago, and there was a question about Fifty, th- Fifty Shades. Like, as a, as a community, I think romance is so interested in moving past Fifty Shades and sort of saying, like, we are in a new place now, and we are, right? Generations, we've said a thousand times on the podcast, like, generations move so fast in romance that there's so little, like, on the reread of this, there is so little of, like, what is romance in 2020 in this book? Like, we really have just evolved out of the Fifty Shades world, but... It is still the book the rest of the world looks at and says, oh, romance novels like Fifty Shades. 
Yeah. Like romance novels. Oh, like Fabio. Like we don't love that either. But like this is the reality. We have these these texts. We have Fabio's like long blonde hair and we have Fifty Shades. So the history is that it comes out of fanfic. And we are going to have Christina Lauren back on this se- this season to talk about fanfic. And part of the reason why we're so excited about Christina Lauren coming back on is because they, too, came out of the Twilight fanfic sphere, along with Sally Thorne and Tara Sumi and a number of other writers who are still writing and, like, deeply embedded and invested in the romance community. Like, we owe a lot of what we see in romance now today to Stephanie Meyer and the Twilight fanfic universe. Um, And so they're going to come on. We're going to talk about fanfic. We're going to talk about some of the big fanfic communities that have really delivered to romance in the past uh, 10 years. And I'm really excited about that conversation. So, But we can't lose sight of a few things. We can't lose sight of the fact that this book was the first gigantic romance novel of the 21st century. And we can't lose fact and lose track of the fact that uh, it is also when you talk about the impact of fanfic on romance, it is impossible to do it without talking about the genesis of Fifty Shades, I think. Maybe this is something we're going to save for later, but like, and you and I talked about this in a text, right? The things we talk about when we talk about Fifty Shades and the things we don't. That's what I wanted. I want this, look... I want this episode, obviously, we're going to talk about the content of the book, too. But I actually don't think there's as much to talk about about the content of the book. Like, we are talking about, when we talk about Fifty Shades, we are talking about something very different than, like, the words on the page. And that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, and I so right. So in, in some ways, this isn't going to be, like, a typical episode. We're not going to, like, do a plot summary. It's, Go watch the movie. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, you know, I read it that one time. Um, I did not read any of the sequels and in fact this week I went and read the um I read the beginning of number two Mm -hmm. because I was really interested like did I try it like what happened and I must have started it because I remembered why I was like this is dumb it's like five days later and she gets back with him and I was like wait why even right like what is going on right and I think the thing so I think you know for me we're also just going to talk about it as this one thing I don't have a lot I don't I don't really know or care right about book two books two and three for like me personally as a reader no I mean I've said a, a lot of times that when you talk about Fifty Shades in the world, right? When you talk about Fifty Shades as a as a cultural text, you kind of have to talk about it as all three because it is, you know, all three. But I think a lot of people were very served by book one and didn't really care to go further. Well, so maybe we should start off talking about the way in which it's not a classic romance novel, of course, well, is that it doesn't end happily. And you know what I really found myself thinking about this time was um, how much it reminded me actually of the movie Nine and a Half Weeks. Mm, and mm-hmm. also and also Pretty Woman. Like, I felt like there was a lot of ways in which this is grounded, not just in Twilight, but in like pop culture in general, especially pop culture about like women and their lovers. And. In nine and a half weeks, they have this really steamy affair, and she walks away from it at the end of it. It's just this shooting star, right? And, of course, in, you know, and then Pretty Woman is, like, the 
a really a very much the same story, right? Rich man, poor girl, like sort of that that I'm going to pluck you out of obscurity and my attention to you will make you you in some ways. Like, so, you know, to me, I'm just like, yeah, but it's like not even really a romance in that way. There's not really the classic romance plot. It's Mm. really erotic romance in the sense that it's about their sexual relationship. And they're fundamentally really not really that well suited for each other. they're not compatible. Because his kink is something she finds abnormal. Yeah, which is a big problem. Yeah, it is. (laughs) I want to give a couple more like historical facts about Fifty Shades. Um... One of which will, at the end, I'll tack on to what you're saying about his kink. So it was written uh, as fanfic. It was called Master of the Universe. Um, she was named on the like on the fanfic boards. Yale James was called Snow Queen's Ice Dragon. That was her name. Awesome. Um, and it was this massive behemoth of a piece of fanfic, which then she rewrote for publication. And I don't know this for sure, but I assume chopped up into three pieces. Like, I don't think she was, like, continuing the story. I think the story was complete. And she, right, decided where to cut it. Yeah. So she decided where to cut it. I want to highlight the fact that the end of Fifty Shades is a cliffhanger. She leaves him. Mm -hmm. Right. We have seen this work over and over again in other romances. Like, there is a very classic... I mean, Jen's on the record. Um, There is a very classic indie romance trope where you chop your story up into three pieces and end each one on a cliffhanger um, and sell the book separately. And that, But that comes from Fifty Shades, right? It has to. It has to, yes. I mean, prior to Fifty Shades, there just wasn't... There wasn't enough money in the indie romance hill. I mean... That's not fair. Actually, I shouldn't say that because prior to Fifty Shades, there was Barbara Freethy, who we've talked about on the on the podcast before, that Barbara um, is the best sellingest <laughs> author on Amazon ever. Yeah. Um, Barbara was a contemporary romance writer who at like in 2009 or two, like 2008, 2009, right when the Kindle just was a seed of a interest to the world, mm-hmm. she sort of said oh, wait a second, I'm going to get all my rights back to my old Harlequins. I don't even know if they were Harlequins, but to my old contemporaries. And I'm going to put them all up. And she had this massive backlist that was suddenly hers and available as content on your new Kindle, which at the time there was no KU. Like, you have to think, like, 12, 13 years ago, what we know now as indie publishing just didn't exist. I mean, it made itself, right? Bella Andre was hustling. She couldn't, she did not get her backlist back. So she wrote her backlist in the first like year. I think she wrote a book every seven weeks um, and popped them all up online. And she talked about somebody who hustled and built herself a really wonderful, by the way, I think Bella's such a skilled writer, like a wonderful backlist. And those two were doing great. There were a lot. There were several other authors who were, I mean, several. There were lots of other authors who were doing okay. And then in comes not just Stephanie, other people too, but Fifty Shades somehow blows the doors off, right? Somehow it becomes the book that everyone was reading. And... Part of the reason, Jen, I think that we're talking about this this week, and you're the one who said, Sarah, if we're going to talk about the work of romance, we got to talk about 50. Yeah. Like, 
I wonder, so maybe you could talk to everybody about why this, because I do think I'm hearing you guys out there kind of rolling your eyes, groaning, Mm -hmm. like I've heard from some of you actually personally, like (laughs) why, why 50 when there are so many others? And I think that Jen and I are really on the record as like knowing how many others there are. Um, And so why are we doing this one and not so many others? (sighs) Well, I think partly because of what you talked about, right? Like, it's the book everyone wants to talk to you about when you say you read romance. Um, I think it's very interesting as a reader to see um, there's a lot of animosity towards Fifty Shades as being, um, and I think it comes from a lot of factions, right? I think part of it is... Mm-hmm. It's hard to actually name what they are because it feels unkind to people, right? I think there's, um, you know, it's kind of like, well, why is this the book that's the juggernaut? It's not the best of us, right? From romance readers. That's a fair point. Well made. One yeah, might right. Say. Exactly. Right. Um, I think there's a, so there's, I think, a lot of feelings from, uh, from us, uh, you know, like the inside of romance that we are, like kind of unfairly burdened with this thing that's not even romance from an author who doesn't really care about us. Yeah, I mean, we're also, it's just to to underscore that, I mean, we're talking about somebody who like really came from outside the genre, delivered a text that the genre has had to sort of speak to for a decade, and then left the genre, so to speak, or maybe never was here to begin with. Like it just was never, I think... I think she, I think there was just very little interest in in her. I don't think she ever thought of herself as part of us. Like I think right. she thought of herself right. as a fanfic writer who then became a superstar. Right. So I think there and there I think traditionally and classically and I understand why romance readers have we really love people who like kind of full-throatedly embrace us and the genre. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're always a little suspicious of, like, this book, this author doesn't want to be ours, and yet we're told that she's ours. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, I will say, so I I read this book once a million years ago. Um, I read it again for this. And it was fascinating to reread it because I think there, I mean, clearly it, you know, the billionaire romance, the BDSM was huge. You couldn't have an erotic romance without BDSM for years. No, so much spanking for years. There was so much spanking. So much, right? Um, And then, of course, yet, I I would imagine the kink community feels the same way about Fifty Shades that we do, right? Oh, wait, this is one of my facts, but you finish, and then I'll give you the good. Upon rereading it, and we've done all this rereading of really classic romances from the 80s and 90s this book is really channeling a lot of what we see in early romance right so the the powerful master of the universe boss the disconnect between body and mind that can only be solved by being with this right man um right it is so old-fashioned it's very old-fashioned it's wild how as i was reading it on the reread right looking at it as a text not as yes. like right. I mean, not like, as a book I'm I reading for fun. I remember back in the day when I read it for the first time. I've read it multiple times, and because I mean, True. when you write romance novels, there is a lot. Like I spend probably more time than I should thinking like, how did that happen? How did that? Why that book? Why? How do I do that? 
right? Right. And so back in the, but I remember back in the day thinking like, this is a Harlequin Presents. Yes. Like, it's just a very big Harlequin Presents. With way more fucking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously. <laughs> but right? the, so it's, it's a Harlequin Presents, but then, but you know, flabby. It's three books long. It's 300,000 words or however many thousand. I mean, it's so, there's a lot in there that could probably come out. But at the same time, it's a book that now reading it in 2020, I mean, how many times have you said like, oh, generations and romance, they move so fast. Like there's no book that I feel like I have Read and we have read old Sandra Browns. Mm-hmm. We've read that we did that the, the Vivian Stevens episode where we read, you know, the original Jane Ann Krenz's of hers and other books. Like, I have never felt I think about uh, Nora Roberts is Born in Ice. Mm-hmm. Like, we've read some old books on yes. this podcast, and none of them feel so old fashioned like this. Like this. I mean, it's these so old fashioned, these books, the Books they most powerfully reminded me of were the ones that we read with Steve Amidon that Vivian Stevens acquired. Yeah, but even this, like, it feels like it feels like you're reading something from the 1800s. Like yeah. the way he talks, he's yeah, supposed totally. to be 29. I, I mean, right. he was born in 1981. So that's a part I think that I don't want to like discount. That it's really harnessing the kinds of stories. I mean, like, I remember in high school watching Pretty Woman and my English teacher being like, I can't believe you guys love that movie. It's ridiculous. And I was like, shut up. The heart wants what it wants. Mm -hmm. And I felt like this very similarly is, is, you know, there's something like it's really tapping into something, I think, really primal about the way society has socialized women to think is care. Yes. And I mean, it just feels so one-sided. Well, by design, though, in the writing. Well, no, no, no. I'm not talking about it being on. I mean, the writing is first person present, right? So sure. we're never in his in his point of view. And, you know, we were never in lots of her. I mean, this is another reason why it's very old fashioned. Like, right. It feels like you're reading an old historical in the sense that, like, we don't understand the hero. But the relationship feels one sided. It feels like it is. It's so patriarchal. She exists for his pleasure. And what's interesting is that in the last 12 years, we have read a lot, or not 12 years, but in the last whatever decade, we have read a lot of BDSM, right? A lot. And now there is such a real care taken in so many of these great BDSM books to discuss why the submissive characters' needs are taken care of. Like, for their own pleasure, right? Like, how this experience does not exist for the pleasure of the dom, but for the pleasure of the sub as as well. And often more, more for the pleasure of the sub right. than the other way around. And I think, you know, this is why kink, the kink community was so up in arms about like, sure. how irresponsible the representation was. I do want to say um, that... 
in the immediate year after Fifty Shades was released, um, the number of Americans requiring emergency room care for injuries involving sex toys has <laughs> uh, they it doubled. Yeah. And that is a really interesting like I think there is a lot to be said for how this book impacted people in real life. And like we talk so much about the expectations that romance sets and the ex- the, the ways that we want the text to impact the the reader. Um but like this book made America more kinky. Right. Right. Which that's wild it is and that's the part about it i guess here's the other thing i think i think that's a positive probably good thing right overall me me too i'm not i'm not arguing that but like that's the data point that and an article that i that i remember reading in 2012 saying that like bloomingdale's couldn't keep gray silk ties on the shelf (laughs) which always (laughs) made me laugh because i just envisioned all these poor men coming home from work and having their wives be like i bought you a gray silk tie and then being like now what do i do (laughs) and there's a great line do you were you a sleepless in seattle fan ever yes there's that great line where tom hanks is like i guess i have to get out there and rob reiner is like tiramisu what is tiramisu you'll find out what is it you'll see some woman is gonna want me to do it to her and i'm not gonna know what it is you'll love it ultimately what I hope is other like positive good is that it brought people to romance right so I I don't ever want to be like mad about Fifty Shades I I'm not mad about Fifty Shades I see I think it's fascinating like I I think I'd started reading it and I texted you and I was like I am fascinated reading this same like same an anthropologist uh, uh, you know I mean it is this book gives me a great deal of joy because of this because like what on earth and like I think you know you and I have talked a lot about like I think it's a lot of things I think it's packaging like that was the first time aside from Twilight that we just saw that like Black cover with a tie, black cover handcuffs, black cover mask. Really beautiful. Like the perfect packaging plus timing, which I'm going to keep coming back to, plus this idea in the world. Remember, like in 2010, we were coming off of a massive recession Women had borne the brunt of that recession. Right. They called it a he session for a reason. Men had lost their jobs at an alarming rate in comparison to women. Which is now it's the opposite, by the way. Yeah, of course. Well, because now there are children on the line, right? So the in that sense, what women were experiencing, so a lot of women were bearing the like financial burdens of a home, of a family, and still all the emotional burdens, and still like wishing that they had time for themselves, wishing that they had, they were able to, you know, do everything perfectly. Yeah. And in comes this hero who takes care of everything. That contract is like... I'll put food in your fridge. I'll make sure you have a clothing budget. You have to exercise. You get to exercise and be healthy. You get to, you know, whatever. Get some sleep. All you have to do is, like, have orgasms. I was thinking, like, okay, one of the things that I, as a woman, find the worst is dealing with anything with my car. 
mm-hmm. right? Like I have to go to the mechanic. What a pain. What if they're a jerks to me? By the way, I love my mechanic. If you're in Chicago, Ashland Tire and Auto, they're amazing. Um, they never <laughs> treat me like I'm a jerk because I'm a woman, right? But like going, selling your car, buying a new car, the, the part where he sell, sends his man off to like see, sell her yeah. car for her. And buys her I was a like, safe car. There's Audi, the right? fantasy, <laughs> right? You don't have to deal with the car salesman. Let me take that off your plate. You don't have to deal with anything. You don't have to deal with grocery shopping with your bad boss with your car your junker of a car there is power in that and we have seen that over and over again in rome that plays out in romance all the time but the one thing that feels really old-fashioned is he doesn't seem to take care of her emotionally oh not in any way right he is the emotional like he is emotionally stunted and she is she bears the full burden of emotion in this. Yeah, I mean, this is a very, I mean, this, it's like June Cleaver, right? Like the, on page, their relationship breaks down in a way that made me feel like I was watching 1950s television, right? And not television about the 1950s, not Mad Men, right? Like actually like, you know, these, and and except for the sex part, right? And I think that's the part where I was thinking a lot about the scene where he figures out she's a virgin Mm. because I like that scene a lot, by the way, I actually am going to tell you, I think there are two really brilliant scenes in this Mm -hmm. book and they are about sex. And the first one is when he discovers she's a virgin. Mm -hmm. And then of course the scene at the end. And part of the reason it's so amazing is in this really patriarchal like system I have described, right. That we are socialized into in many ways still, Women's virginity is this, like, prized thing. Yeah. And it is nothing to him. He views it as a nuisance. Like, I guess we got to get this over with. He's shocked that she hasn't had sex before, but he's not like, oh, I win you now. No, right? And I, you know what? I think after decades of, like, sort of wars about women's sexuality in 2010 mm-hmm. i bet i was like well look at look at this little cocktail that's being mixed up here right which is you can be emotionally capable and find a a man who maybe isn't but he's gonna take care of you but he's gonna bang you into next fucking week <laughs> and he's gonna be great at it and he's not gonna care about who you've been with before like it's a really interesting like graft mm-hmm. of sort of this new sexual like revol- new politics of sexual revolution on top of very patriarchal structures yes because the reality is, is that oh that contract i keep going back to that oh the contract. contract i hate that contract so much fascinating that they put that all in the fucking book though oh i mean what it's amazing i will say this i reviewed gray for the washington post when it came out. Gray, so everyone, Gray is Fifty Shades of Gray told from Christian's perspective, not on us. Is it like five pages long? Well, she it's still Twilight fan fiction, right? Like Stephanie mm-hmm. Meyer had written, what's it called? Midnight, Midnight Sun. Midnight Sun. So, and that, if you remember correctly, when Midnight Sun was first announced, it was back in the day, and then it got released online. And she was like, well, I'm yes, not going to publish not, right, it then. Right. So I assume, you know, E.L. James is clearly a massive Stephanie Meyer fan and was like, I'm going to do that. Sure. Right? Why not? Right. It's like uh, she's a completist. So Gray came out and I reviewed it. And the 
The gray gray does not have the contract in it, but does have the complete background check on Anastasia in it. Like, oh, absolutely like a formal like document from the public from the private investigator. Like there are so many things about this book that are wild. Like, right. I would never I would be like, everybody will stop reading when they get to this. I got to the contract and was I was like, wait. Oh, it's still going. Oh, there's more. But also, can we talk about things like Anna is expected to not have other partners, but there's nothing in the contract that says Christian won't. Of course. Right? Like, there, but then, of course, like, you're expected to just believe that Christian would, he would never. Right, right. And so, there are these really interesting, but Anna never has that question. Like, there's just so many things about it. That are the sort of underscore this kind of old school, really old school, impenetrable hero who is does not show at all on the page that he cares for the heroine. And then you are expected to divine this from several from moments along the way. Right. Right. You're expected to divine it from the scene where she says, I'm a virgin. And he's like, well, let's get this out of the way. But he's like, I'm going to make love to you tonight. Right. And so as a reader of Romance Forever, I know that that means he's he loves her. Right. Exactly. Or he goes to see her when she goes to see her mother. Yeah. Right. Like that. Yeah, I mean, there's so much about it that we're like, it's so old fashioned. And you think to yourself, like, did E.L. James read romance novels? Because a lot of this is coded in. Right. But then it doesn't seem so. I feel like she reads culture. I mean, I really do. I feel like like, old fashioned culture. Like, I feel like she's like, there's a reason why. I mean, sure. I want to talk about Thomas Hardy too, right? What an what a choice. Yes. But, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, right? Like it's everything about this is coded as old fashioned Moore's new fangled sexuality. Even to the point where I can we talk about Mrs. Robinson for a minute? Yep. Because of all the things I had completely forgotten and is he was essentially you know Anna's point and my point of view as well right is that he was molested essentially right abused and yet I will say like even recently I've seen this in books where you know a a young a man discloses that he had a, a lover when he was a teenager who was much older and even on Twitter a couple weeks ago there was a a, a some kind of singer I'm not I forget his name um who talked about essentially named like yes I was a, an older woman took advantage of me I was I was I was sexually assaulted when I was a young boy by a woman who was older and I was a teenager and and a lot of people were commenting like it's so rare that people name this but there is a way in which I was fascinated by the fact that like here this is in this book that's 10 years old and I've never heard anybody talking about, like, ever talking about it when they talk about Fifty Shades. And it was one of the most interesting things that I read in the book was their disagreement on what that meant for him. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I 
believe I have not ever been in a fanfic community, so I don't know this to be true. But I believe that in I, the way I understand it is that in fanfic communities, like everybody reads each other's stuff. Right. And so I actually think that what Fifty Shades represents from Fifty Shades likely pulls from many different worlds of Twilight fan fiction. Right. So you feel like there's the old fashioned like Edward historical feel. Right. And then there's the dark taboo feel that we see. So we see. We can point to other people, right? Like, I can point to Tara Sumi and say, like, Tara Sumi's work, it does the hard work of doing taboo, like, doing dark romance, right? right. And then there's, like, those emails... The like first the emails are so clever, like the back and forth between them. They're oh, the yeah. best for me. They're the best part of the book. Yeah, and, me too. Um, but, and that is that is categorical. They are the best part of the book. And you sort of think, well, Christina and Lauren came up through there like they're funny, like they're light, like maybe there's, you know, there's inspiration taken from all of these different places, um, which is why I'm really excited about getting about having a real conversation around how fanfic results in romance right. novelists, because I think we all are inspired by each other in right. romance. Right. Um. I think that part of it is that, and maybe this is part of why the book worked so well for so many people, is because it cast this massive net. Yeah, like right. There's something for everyone here. I don't actually think that, like, the book did not... There, there are many, many things about the book that do not work for me. But I still read it all the way through to the end. And not just because it was work. And I think that for I think that for people who want it for women who had never really explored any thoughts about kink because they've never been allowed to, it gave them a little taste of that. And like there was a little taste of like, imagine if you had a husband who or partner who like cared for every aspect of you. Like imagine you had all the money you wanted. Imagine Imagine you were super rich. Imagine you got the job you wanted whenever you applied for it. Like imagine like you can imagine yourself. uh, I just did a panel with Tracy Livesey and she said that one of the reasons why the heroines of romance have become so strong, like, the one of the reasons why the heroines are so great now is because they're um when you when you put them up against heroines from like old romance from like the 70s and 80s and even 90s right you see a group of heroines in those books that are very sort of flat stanley mm-hmm. um and you can you can like project yourself into those books well and that's what i wanted to bring up right this is like a sort of famous early take on romance and you know what i'll see if i can pull it out of it. it's in that are you talking about kinsale yeah is it right the self-insert essentially right but like she at, says you self-insert as the hero well but so i'm maybe i'm thinking of some maybe i'm thinking of the jane ann krenz like the maybe. 20 25 year old book where it's like a bunch of authors and danger the book is dangerous men adventurous women yeah and there is a very famous Laura Kinsale piece in that about how many people believe that you in self-insert as the heroine, but she believes, and this is unsurprising for people who are Kinsale fans, <laughs> shout out to Ke- Kennedy Ryan and Kate Claiborne, um, she believes that when you self-insert into a romance novel, you self-insert as the hero. It's fascinating. It is fascinating because I don't self-insert as anybody. I'm like, just tell me a great story. But do you self-insert on a flat heroine? 
Well, that's the question. I think, by the way, this is, I hear a lot about Twilight, that one of the, that like, you know, canonically what people say is, well, you know, all these girls read Twilight and they became Bella. And I think that this is like sort of a similar, like Anastasia Steele is really pretty, there's not a, a lot of there there, right? Does she has her inner goddess in her subconscious, her devil and her angel on her shoulder? By the way, I have still not seen these movies, but I am told that the inner goddess and the subconscious are not their own characters, and that I think is a misstep. <laughs> well, but you know what? It's really it's fascinating. It really. I was reading it, and I was kind of like, "Wow, this is a lot, right?" Her. It's. It's. I would say for me the. When we talk about, when people sort of talk about the bad writing of Twilight, I don't know what they're talking about, because... No, we talked on this podcast that we don't think Twilight has bad writing. No, but... Twilight's a great read. I do, well, that's, I think, there's a difference between bad writing and a bad read. Uh, fine. I don't know, I don't know. I mean, maybe, I don't don't know. I don't know, I mean, I guess I'm just saying, though, the thing that didn't work for me, well, present tense is never going to work for me, although... I'll talk about that in a minute, too. The devil and the, the, not the angel, the inner goddess and the subconscious. <laughs> I was fascinated by all of the verbs that, oh, I was, you know, so the inner goddess doing, doing flips so and many ballet and pirouetting. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's a lot for me. But, but you know. also, like, like, sort of, like, I had this moment where I was like, it just feels like once it starts, it's so obvious whenever it's on the page that it's intentional of course like sure I think it's all intentional and I think it is like it does add a certain level of like what the fuck is going on and I think like as a reader I don't I don't know I don't understand this book I don't understand (laughs) why and I mean like I want to be really conscious I want to say out loud that like I like if you love Fifty Shades of Grey like that is absolutely great. I'm I was really glad it, right? you have a book that you love this. Like, if you are right. one of the people who, like, loved every second of it, couldn't wait for Grey, like, we are here for you. Jen and oh, I are yeah. here for you. And I, and I hope you are listening to us with, like, open hearts because we are just trying to unpack how this book gets 150 million readers worldwide. Here's the thing. I, I think the, the thing that's really interesting about the inner goddess subconscious and also the present tense, which yep. we all know I don't like. <laughs> in a weird way, though, this book really commits to it in a way that I like. There's a lot of scenes where I was like, I don't know why they're here. But one of my biggest, like, kind of meta, my own brain, I'm not talking about it in, like, the real way. I'm talking about my way of understanding present tense, is, like, when I go through my day, I don't know what's important or not. Shit just happens. And at the beginning of this book, there's scenes where she just, like, calls her dad and goes to work and nothing happens. It furthers the story in no way. And I was like, why are these scenes here? And I was like, well, if you're going to, like, really follow through on present tense, that kind of makes sense. Like, I called my dad. I went to work. These things happened to me. But I don't know how they fit into the story of her love affair with Christian. And when the inner goddess appears, I feel like it's a clear narrative reason it's her trying to make sense of her own feelings. And it made sense to me that there's a way that we all like self-talk, right? There's a way we talk to ourselves about like, how do we understand what we're feeling right now? And maybe I thought it was silly, but I ended up being like, I get it. 
I get what she's doing here. Yeah. And I think there's something really real about it in a way that I think readers might have been drawn to. However, I do think that it's important for us to talk about the fact that this book puts sex on the page early and often. Oh, yeah. I was like, wow. As somebody who cut my teeth on romance and, like, has certainly read, like, I mean, I read Bertree Small back in the day. So, like, this is not a surprise to me. I think that pack. I mean, I know that I sound like a a broken record here, but packaging matters. And, like, reader and the Kindle matters at this point. And... This was very much for the reader who didn't read a ton of books all the time, but had just been given a Kindle. Like, this book opened a door to sex that no other book has ever done. And on top of it, like, aside from, like, making... Look, here's the truth. Romance doesn't have 150 million readers worldwide. These are not all romance readers. They did not come to it because it's a romance novel, all of them. They did not stay for it, many of them, right? This book gave them access to kink. Yeah. Problematic or not. Like, it gave them access to fantasy. That no other form of of media had, like, been... And no other form of media had been shoved in their face the way this was, in some ways. Like, and I think, you know, you talk about the history of this. At the time, the Times was writing, like, you couldn't open the Times-style section for weeks without there being a story about Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, book clubs on the Upper East Side, which for those of you who are not New Yorkers, like, that's where the posh people live. Really rich ladies were all getting together for Fifty Shades of Grey book clubs. And, like, there's just something in the DNA of this book struck a really powerful chord. I think one of the things I would say is, although Anna, Anna, I don't know, has a lot of ambivalence about Christian's kink... There's no ambivalence at all about how great the sex is otherwise and how Mm. much she enjoys it and how much he enjoys it and how fun it is for them. And do you think that that's enough? I think that maybe for a lot of non-romance readers, it was revolutionary. I think so, too. And I don't want to discount that. I think that's pretty great. I think what's really interesting about it is so we know from data that obviously, like, it made women— largely, although I'm sure there were men who read it too, it made women largely like more adventurous with sex because we can tell by injuries in the emergency room <laughs> right. that more people were trying stuff. Yes. Right. I mean, we know that also true also because, um, you know, there's well, there's a picture in the Washington Post article. We'll put it in show notes um, that Babeland carried this book. Mm. You know, a lot of a lot of sex toy shops carried Fifty Shades. A lot of I remember walking into word bookstores in Brooklyn, which at the time had a tiny little romance section mm-hmm. like way in the back of the store. And they had Fifty Shades right on the front, right on the front. It was in every airport. It was in I mean, it was everywhere. So it sort of became a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
Well, and like, God, you buy vibrators at Target now. I mean, here's the thing. If it's on the front desk, if it's on the front table at your bookstore, it's in on the like spinny rack right inside the door at the Hudson News in the airport. Right. Like, and then you open it up and it has this, it has unabashedly pleasurable sex in it. Like what it is actually doing for women is somewhat empowering. Right. And it's normalizing it. Like it's okay for you to have orgasms and enjoy it. Right. Right. Which is powerful stuff. And that it's your partner's responsibility to attend to that at but some here's level. The thing. Right? I don't just want to talk about Fifty Shades this episode. And we're already 50 minutes in. But uh-huh. like, because I want to talk about the impact of it. Right? Like, I want to talk about the ripples. And yeah. the ripples are supremely good bondage books. Like BDSM books. That yeah. really treat it. Be the BDSM lifestyle with thought and care. I'm thinking right. about people like Tiffany Rice. Mm, oh, yeah. And Ilya Winters. And I mean, um, any number of people. I mean, it's yeah. really, right? It's like, I don't even want to list them because it feels no, like that. No, no, no. It, it like blew the door wide open for that. For thoughtful, like we've taught, we did a whole episode about Nikki Sloan. Like yeah. really remarkable work around the lifestyle to in in response, right? Like in right. this sense of like you you all don't actually know how good it can be. Right. Right? Like let's lead you down this path. And then I want to talk about the fact that like you know, it also opened the door. It normalized fan fiction as a legitimate yeah. way of succeeding. In romance, indie romance, right? Self-published and indie romance is everybody in indie op- in indie romance saw an opportunity to put their stories into the world. Packaging, we saw this this packaging, this trim size, the whole. I mean, like one might argue, like trade the trade trim size comes from this. Certainly, the trade trim size for for erotica and erotic romance comes from this. And truthfully, I gotta say. In the world, a wider willingness to discuss sex without it being taboo. For everyone that read that, I mean, for romance readers, maybe this isn't revolutionary, but this woman's point of view about her sexual journey. I know, Jen, but like first person present, this is it. Really, we should have we should have done an episode about Twilight because I feel like it took YA and it made it romance. Although it's interesting, Twilight is is first person but not present tense. Oh, is it not present? Mm-mm. I checked this week because I was curious about that as well. I, I don't think it matters. A lot of YA was was present tense and still is, and so it it merges those in a lot of interesting ways. I think. Um, and she's pretty young. I mean, right? Oh, yeah, because she's not even graduated college at the beginning of the book, and he's twenty nine. So yeah, I mean they're young, and and the, like are, at the time it. it it also, like, all the publishers sat up and took notice and suddenly new adult was a thing, which is not a thing, you guys. New adult is not a thing. It's just contemporary romance with younger characters. Right. Like, <laughs> um, but, like, what's amazing, and I, I, as a romance evangelist, like, it feels like what it did was open readers' minds to this idea that all these other writers were doing doing the same things, but better. 
right? Like doing young characters, but better doing sex and kink, but better doing like, and that is largely because let's be honest, this book tries to do too much, but I don't actually think it's trying to do anything. That's the part that is really fascinating to me. I will say upon the reread, I was like, there's not a lot of plot and there's not even really a lot of tension. I mean, I guess the, 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 the tension of the contract and will or it will she or will she not sign it really is like the real dilemma of book one, right? Like they're like, yeah, we really like each other and we have great sex. So we're going to keep doing it. The contract itself, I think. Is no, she sort right. of waves away the contract because she doesn't. And I mean, this is smart in a sense, right? Like she doesn't want to lock Anna into this because once she's locked into this contract, the power is almost unwritable, right? Like it becomes too one-sided. But I mean, if you were going to point out like what is the plot of like, where's the tension or conflict in this book? Yeah. It's literally like, is she going to sign this thing or not? I mean, for me, because will she agree to his demands really but i think this i think the thing that's also really interesting is how much it feels like um like she was harnessing things that were like she caught an early wave i mean it's luck too right of course of course right she's just the first surfer on the wave it's the right the right package the right time the right place it's luck it's just like the Da Vinci Code. Right. You you can't pick juggernauts, right? Right. Like, why did everybody I mean, watch Forrest Gump or whatever? Right. It's, I mean, lightning strikes twice in this. So, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, th- I guess I thought when we started, when we said we were going to record this, that we were going to crack the code. But we're not cracking the code. I don't think, you know, I don't know funny, that there is a code. I don't think so either. There's a really interesting book I checked out of the library and then I didn't read, but I want to read after we recorded. Because I didn't, I wanted to sort of just like come with my own ideas. But it's like 50 writers on 50 Shades of Grey. And I was like, I'll be really interested because it's a lot of people. Are any that, of like, them romance people? Yeah, no, a lot of them are, right? And it was um, C- uh, Cecilia Tan put it together. Oh, I like her very yeah, much. Yeah, right. So I'm sure it's going to be fascinating. But I was like, you know what? I don't, I want to really bring my own like ideas to it. But I, th- I think, like, here, here's what I think. This is, I don't think it's necessarily doing anything revolutionary like you. I think it's just like timing. Yeah. But I do think that it's really harnessing a really powerful story. Like I said, that like women in particular in America, I don't know, maybe it's a worldwide juggernaut, but it seems very American to me as well. If the American dream or is like this sort of renegade hero figure, I think a lot of women are socialized to think can I draw that man's attention, not can I be that person myself? Mm-hmm. I mean, Christian Grey is the Marlboro man, right? Christian Grey is, I mean, right, he's all of those things. And I think that that's the part of it that's, like, really fascinating to me is all the things we can project onto him are just as interesting as all the things we can project onto her. You know, I was talking to Eric about this yesterday because I was like, I'm just, on the reread, I'm even more confused Mm-hmm. about this, right? Because for many years, I have given a lot of interviews about Fifty Shades, and I have always said the stuff that I said earlier about timing and, like, you know, why women want this. But reading it now, and part of it is time, like, I actually don't think Fifty Shades stands 
a test of time. Like, I think it is a talk about a book that is of its time. Right. I don't think it is like, you know, over the over the last year, over season two, we read a lot of books that blooded us at very specific times in our life. Right. And I think some of them still worked really well for us, like Judith McNaught. And some of them didn't work as well for us because it was a different time. And this feels like if it came out today, it wouldn't. I'll be curious if we have listeners who would read it for the first time. So Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell right? us. Then I think it'll be really interesting to hear what they say. So I really want to talk about the ending because I actually think. Yeah. Now, again, you're, I believe that she wrote this all together and just I believe so it up, too. Right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, sure. I don't. I don't. And when I say I believe that, I mean. I believe it happened. Like, I am, I have not, I did not look at Wikipedia today, but I'm pretty sure that is what it was. So here's, here's my thing. This was actually a really satisfying ending for me because I think they are fundamentally mismatched. He, his kink to her feels like hitting. I think it's really interesting that she says that over, you just want to hit me. Like, and I was like, it's not really hitting when it's consensual and you're both into it. Like, that's not the word you would use. And she, at the end, is like, I think it's actually an amazing scene at the end, by the way. Oh, me too. It is a fantastic because scene. Because it's very rewarding. Yes. He finally gets what he deserves. And and it's and here's the part. Her walking away at that moment, I was like, this is right. Like, you're never, he's never going to be right for you. What he needs, and or I guess my other understanding is, in this situation, if they wanted to remain together because of their emotional attachment, he would just need to find other people to, like, have that kink with, right? That found it just as rewarding. Mm-hmm. But, that, of course, that is not going to work in a romance, right? Necessarily. It would now, but it wouldn't then, maybe. And to be fair, the next two books bring us around on him. See, and I was like, I didn't By I read the them, end no. of this truly, and I have said this to the thousand reporters, but you can't look at it just as one book because there's no HEA. Like, as a trilogy, it is a romance novel. Currently, it is not a romance novel. And, and this is the book that made E.L. James a superstar, not the other two. Right. Oh, yeah. This is the one. And Amazon sold, Amazon said, announced at some point um, that it had sold more copies of Fifty Shades of Grey, book one, yeah. than it had of any Harry Potter book. Wow. Right? So, yeah. that said, a lot of people, I think, finished one and they were like, that is a full story for me. Yeah. I like I- Right? Anna could conceivably live happily ever after, after that. Can I ask a question then? So how is this problem, this fundamental mismatch of their, like, sexual needs resolved? Do you remember? Yeah, well, they don't ever sign a contract. I mean, I'm really bothered by, like, the hitting language. Okay. Well, in Fifty Shades Darker, which is the second book in the trilogy, he comes, he can't deal with not having her classic romance hero move right Mm -hmm. so he goes to her and she sets the rules she which is no no rules one like i'm not signing your shitty contract and no punishments and so they move forward but there's still kink i mean he i mean like the friend finds the contract and like 
you know, there's a lot of back and forth. And then she discovered and then ultimately, like they do, they continue to have kinky sex, but it's not as intense. It's not punishment, right? Which was the deal breaker for her. Yeah. I mean, like one of the big things about it is like there's sort of a sense and and as somebody who is I, I want to make sure that I'm respectful of the kink community I'm not a part of. Right. So I don't if if I say this wrong, please correct us on Twitter or wherever. I know you guys will. So but my understanding is that that like the biggest issue with these books is that like the perception of kink as wound that must be healed. And that right. Absolutely. And like that's a deeply problematic way of looking at somebody's sexual identity. So let's can we talk about the scene at the end though of this one because yeah, I would like that. <laughs> you know what you cannot like 50 shades of gray. This is an amazing scene, like truly. Mm-hmm. Because basically what happens is she says let's try it then. Like if this is so important to you, let's try it. And um and she hates it. Like she is, she is harmed by in this scene, right? She is harmed by him, but she does she doesn't use her safe words, but she's because she's like I'm gonna try it, like I'm gonna give it my best shot, right? Like this is what's happening, and there's this really amazing when it's after the it's like six lashes, I guess, or he at the belt, and when it's over, he goes to comfort her, and she views it as like phony. Like, you just hurt me. You don't now get to comfort me. And she says, is this what you want from me? You want me to be like this? And it's such a fundamental, like, at that moment, I was like, there's no future for them, right? They are not right for each other. Right. And her walking, and then she, her walking away was a satisfying ending to me because I thought, well, these two can never be happy, (laughs) right? But I thought this moment where it's like, I'm going to try something my partner is really into. And he fundamentally misreads her and she offers to do something she doesn't ever want to do. And that felt like a moment of like vulnerability that I tremendously respect, actually, to put Mm -hmm. something like that on page. I agree. I just think it's really hard, Jen. It's hard for us to have. Like, I think this conversation is difficult because there are two more books in this series, right? So, like, you know, the problematic piece of this being about kink being pain or kink being, you know, problematic and you having to cure it in some way, right? Like that perception. It's underscored by the history of Christian's kink, right? Mm -hmm. Which in Fifty Shades... Breed, the third one, it becomes clear that Mrs. Robinson, um, whose name is Elena, Elena. yeah, Elena, um, that Christian has this like terrible mother who's a drug addict and um, can't take care of him, and he had this like horrible childhood and was ultimately adopted by uh, the Trevelyan Greys. Right. Right. Which is Edward. Right. From. Sure. Right. Um, And the he's adopted by them. And then to get over his issues relating to his childhood trauma, Elena teaches him like he becomes Elena's sub and teaches him about 
BDSM as a lifestyle. And then Anna is like, well, if that's part of his whole, like, ability to heal from his childhood trauma, then I'm willing to, you know, be a part of it. And it's really problematic, right? And I think... I I said I didn't want to talk too much about the books because I actually think, like, when we talk about Fifty Shades of Grey, unfortunately, we are not talking about the problematic shit that is in Fifty Shades of Grey. We're talking about how 100 million readers, like, clearly it resonated with them. But I don't think that it resonated. I don't. I think on the one hand, you can't talk about it as a romance without talking about the whole thing, all three. And on the other hand, you can't talk about it as a juggernaut when you're talking about it all three. You have right. to only talk about the first one. <laughs> it's a it's real, complicated. It is. It's this very interesting, like, hybrid kind of beast, right? Like, it's got all these things going on with it. But I think the part about number one, right? Like, just talking about it as it is well, at the end of sorry okay we talk a lot about romance like both interrogating and like winning over the patriarchy mm-hmm. when anna walks away at the end of book one yes say it yes that's what i was gonna say <laughs> right yeah it is to me winning over the patriarchy yes, that it feels rewarding to yes. readers who have been fucking like shattered by patriarchy their whole life and one might add over the last two years during a recession like sure it feels good when she leaves yes it and feels i mean great. like so maybe it's just a real real smart place to end the book right well like, and this is where i want to go back to twilight because the thing that's really interesting about twilight is twilight ends with them together and it's at the beginning of the second twilight book that they break up and then there's this amazing moment right. where it's like months go by and it's just blank pages right and i to this day i know that's fucked up but i i will never forget reading that right exactly here it's a different thing right where she cuts she's, it in a different she, place yes and i and even though so this is why i was like i'm perfectly satisfied with her saying n- not that it's like christian christian is a bad person but that what christian needs is not what i need and we cannot give each yeah. other and we'll never be able to give each other what we need i have to be strong enough to end this right so and it's when not I, a romance Right. And when I went to the beginning of number two and read that, like, within five days she took him back or whatever, I was profoundly disappointed that she could not stick to her, her, stick to her guns. And in that way, I think it's a real, it's, it harkens to romance tropes, but without rewarding romance readers in the same way, Mm -hmm. at least at that moment. Yes, And that, I think, is probably why a lot of romance readers fundamentally struggle with this book as romance, because it isn't following the romance. It doesn't deliver it. It doesn't deliver what we want. Yeah. I mean, in yeah, the first book does not deliver it. Right. But it delivers to romance, the genre legions of new writers Mm -hmm. who do figure out how to deliver it yep yeah and legions of new readers yes who are looking for i mean like this is the other thing we don't talk about a ton but like the difference there the venn diagram 
of indie romance readers and traditional romance readers does not overlap very much. And this is part of why, I think. I think Fifty Shades delivered a lot of digital readers to erotic romance Mm -hmm. that never came over and, like, never walked into a bookstore to say, like, what do I read next? Right. Um, And so I think a lot of what, what erotic romance did was deliver, I mean hundreds if not thousands of writers who just evolved the genre so fast right and so well you know what's interesting about that is that like at the same time as this was like shattering everyone in the whole world Cressley was writing IAD, which we know is super sexy. J.R. Ward was writing Black Dagger Brotherhood. We know that was super sexy. Like, Sylvia Day was writing. Like, there are a lot of people who were writing pure romance with lots of sex in the world. Tell me why IAD is not the book that was the juggernaut. Because I think we both agree that that series is... One of the greatest romance series of all time. It's just really difficult to, like, wrap your head around it. And I don't know if it's, I mean, I know it's timing, but I want it to be something else. And I don't know that it is. But I do think, too, like, we are talking about Twilight and IAD and all these juggernauts that were paranormal. And it's like, take, I mean, it really Mm. is taking those paranormal tropes, mapping them along, like, the uh, the Harlequin Presents, right? Like, it's all the intensity, especially, especially the sexual intensity between them. I really wish she was willing to talk about it. My, in my experience with E.L. James interviews, she doesn't like to talk about the process at all. Yeah. And, like, I would, like, if I had a chance, and look, the reality is, Jen, like, we just blew our chance to ever have E.L. James talk to us. Like, she doesn't (laughs) like criticism, and I get it. Oh, she's laughing all the way to the bank. It's fine. She was never going to talk to us anyway. Exactly. So, but the, the reality is, is that if I had a chance to talk to her, I would really enjoy it, because I would like to know, like, were you a Harlequin Presents reader? Right. Like, did you know that's what you were doing? And I'm real. I'm really interested. Like I'm interested in like. Did you know? Did you know? But how could you know? Like, do people who write juggernauts know? I don't know. You right? know, I think about Julia Quinn, right? Talking about how she sat down and she sort of read a a bunch of historical romances and like mm-hmm. mapped out how how you craft a historical, and then she wrote her books. Yeah, and I think that's really. I think a lot of people do do that. And that's a very vi- that's a very valid way of doing it. It's certainly it's the way people learn to write screenplays. So why why not learn to write any genre that way? And I but I just, you know, I do wonder. I wonder. And I I mean, I think part of it is that when y- the juggernaut is yours, you don't even know. Well, of course. Right. Of course. So but the most important piece of this, and I think the reason why we wanted to start the season with this and then we'll wrap up, is that we felt that you couldn't really talk about modern romance, meaning we spent two seasons. We spent the first season talking about a series that we really love that we think like is like a master class in what romance can do and how romance should be written. Right. Mm hmm. And then we spent season two 
talking about the books that taught us what romance could do as a reader. And now season three is about where romance can go. And I think starting with Fifty Shades was really smart because it sets a line in the sand as like, this is a this is a watershed moment from which the genre is about to just explode. Right. I mean, it's generative, right, in that sense, right? I mean, and when we think about all the things that it has, right, it's like sex, power and relationships, class. I mean, you know, like women versus men's roles and relationships. Uh, and friendship. it's not alone. I think that's the other thing, Jen, that's so important for us to say. Like, we said it before. I want to say it again because I know you guys are going to say it on Twitter and I want to have it said on recording. Yeah. We know. It's not the first one, it's not the only one, but it's the one that sold 150 million copies. So, like, it's the one we're talking about because when we talk about this one, we're not talking about the book. What are we talking about when we talk about Fifty Shades of Grey? We're talking about, right, like, people in the world and women and sex in their, in their lives and... And, and moder- modernity. I mean, like, I don't know that... She- she intends for any of that shit to be in here. Like, right. I don't know. I can't. I, I, sometimes I know. Right. Like sometimes I can see it in the bones of the book. Like, oh, she meant for that to be there. But like, he's so fucking old fashioned. And when she leaves him at the end, you're like, yes. yes. Right. Put That's what patriarchy I wanted. away. Close the door. Let the elevator doors close on it. Like, I think there's also something, like, the one thing I really do love is the use of elevators in this book. Yeah. (gasps) Like, I like that finally she, like, gets in the fucking elevator and leaves him and says, like, I'm closing the door on the past. I'm closing the door on fucking Thomas Hardy and I'm opening a different door. It's triumphant. I think her leaving him at the end is the the most... ending. It's the right ending, and I think it's also part of what makes this book a great book, to be honest with you. I mean, I love romance, and I love the HEA, but her walking away at the end was great. It was great I for think me. It, it gave a lot of women a sense of power. Literal, literal love him and leave him. Yes. Which men have always been able to do. And I just think, like... For I think it's important for us to realize that, like, romance took that and just exploded it. And we started to see that kind of freedom in heroines over and over and over again in different ways. Yeah, right. And I think that is, that maybe is really what makes it... I mean, but we saw that before, too. It's I don't know. You, I mean, again, like walking away from his money and walking away from his the great sex and walking away for all the things he could do for you because you knew deep down in your heart that like it wasn't going to work between the two of you. That's a power move. It mm-hmm. is. And the exploration of that move, like, we saw so many other writers start to really like unpack each of the power moves that that are, you know, the, each of the threads that are in this book. That is what is remarkable about 
what came from Fifty Shades. Like, there was such a power... We go back to, remember, I don't know if I said this, I don't know if I said this on the recording or to your face, but back when we were doing, like, the early books in the in season two, I said, like, I sometimes wonder if, like, Joanna Lindsay would write a book and then Jude Devereaux would pick it up and read it and then she would sit down and she would write a book and they just, like, and then McNaught and Garwood would do the same and so they were just, like, constantly trying to, like, one-up each other. And I, I think that romance has always been iterative. I think about, I think all the time about like, I wrote the Casino series because I read Black Dagger Brotherhood. We are constantly having a conversation with each other as we're reading and writing. And the books are evolving and changing and inspired by other people. And the work that they're doing in the genre and the places that they are lighting, like the places where they're turning on the lights. And I think... A lot of the books that came after this, in indie romance especially, were iterating the unique pieces of this puzzle. It's hard that that is an outsider book. Absolutely. In the sense that, right, like that author doesn't really want much to do with us. Absolutely. And some of those readers don't. And yeah, right. And I think that that's a lot of the tension around this book in romance is why is this the book that we have to deal with? And we do. Look, the reality is, writers, like, I get it. I get it. More than a lot of people, I think. Like, I I get asked about Fifty Shades every time I do an interview. Every time. And every time I talk about the history. And, like, hey, you know what? We are coming up on 50 years from uh, uh, Flame in the Flower. Guess what? Publishing, like, media is going to pay attention and Fifty Shades is going to be front and center again. And we're coming up on 10 years since Fifty Shades. Somebody's going to do the the story. Like, get ready. It's happening. I get what you're saying. And I don't like it either. Like, I want her to show up for romance because a lot of us showed up for her. Right. But at the same time, she didn't come from here. She didn't go here. And also, that's why I want to really honor People who did, who do go here, who came from that world and have been here for a long time. And I think also, you know, later in the season, we're going to read Outlander. And like, that's another person who we as a genre, like, that's another book that we as as a genre get asked about all the time. Mm -hmm. And she has explicitly said... It's not a romance. And And yet. (laughs) And yet we still have to play in the pool. Romance is tricky. It's nuanced and complicated. And it is really hard when you say we have spent 90 some odd episodes talking about this and go and saying like we never want to speak to one book. But this one is is kind of a different story. My final thought is you don't have to like Fifty Shades, but rereading Fifty Shades is fascinating. As a text. As a text. It's like an archaeological dig. Yes. And if you have it in you to approach it that way, I think you will find it a rewarding experience because I certainly did. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the part that then is interesting is you're like, why is this here and who is it speaking to and what is it doing for us and what did... 
what did it do for romance and what does it say about women and America? I mean, there's so much that's like in there. And I really think if you can bring yourself to it with that lens as opposed to like, is this a good read? Did I enjoy it the same way I'd enjoy just picking up a book I wanted to read for fun? Yeah. There's, it was fascinating to me. Yeah. I don't think this is a book that somebody in 2020 picks up and says like, this is, this is exactly the book I'm looking for. I think as a new reader, like, I think this is a comfort read for a lot of people, surely. I could see that. Um, I do, however, think that if you have spent two seasons with us, it is a fascinating book to read. But all of that is to say that uh, we are not going to make you do homework all the time. And our next read is not homework. It's fun. (laughs) Tell everyone what they've won, Jennifer. It's Millivane's uh, Heart of Blood and Ashes. We talked about it on the summer reads and then sort of halfway through we were like, you know, we have a lot to say about this book. Maybe we should do a full episode. And it's also like a fantasy romance, really different in terms of um, what it's trying to do. It came out last, no, this year, earlier this year. Is bananas. It is bananas. It is a five bananas out of five. <laughs> yes, and it's it's long. It's five hundred pages, so you're so gonna want to reading. You know, get reading. Um, also worth if you are somebody who needs content warnings, you should probably check Goodreads. Yes, for sure. Um, there's some violence on page, and I think people would maybe want to know about that. So, yeah, we'll, I'll see if I can find a review that has a particularly good list and link to it in show notes for this week. I'm really excited about it. I am, too. Mila tweeted at us last week, and she was <laughs> like, I can't believe that you guys talked are going to do a whole episode. And I was like... And she she seems nervous. She shouldn't. Millie, you should not have seen nervous. We loved it. We oh my really gosh. loved it. Uh, it yeah. will not be like this one. <laughs> I don't think we were mean, though, here. Like, I think no. this, like, I actually, here's the other thing. Like, y'all, James, if you're listening, like, honestly, I think, like, it's such a cultural text at this point. Like, there's just nothing mean to say about it. Like, it's just, it is a, it stands Apart from everything else. Yeah. And you know what? We might not have figured out why, but I think we talked a lot about what yeah, it does we do. Never, we never, I don't think I ever That's will. Okay. This, I go to my grave not knowing. <laughs> I mean, I feel the same way about Forrest Gump. So what can I tell you? Right? Why did we all love that movie? Yeah. I mean, I sure. think there are a lot of them, but it's interesting because like, you know, we talk about Da Vinci Code and I know exactly why Dan Brown is great. I know exactly why he works. And I just, you know... Anyway, well, so Millivane in two weeks. Let's do it. Uh, we this that is fate of mates for the week. Um, you can buy gear from Jordan Denae or um, pins from uh, Kelly, best friend Kelly. If you go to our website, fateofmates.net, and click on merch, there you will also find transcripts. We are produced by Eric Mortensen. Uh, what else do we have to say? Oh. Oh, I have a book coming out. You guys, I accidentally wrote a contemporary novella while I was under quarantine. It's set in England. It's a secret Duke story. It's in an anthology called Naughty Brits, which is coming out September 15th. So um, you can see if I can pull off a contemporary. She can. Uh, She can. P.S. really nice. She can. Um, And then I think all that is left to say is uh, laters, baby. 
Are you rolling your eyes at me? (laughs) Amazing. Have a great uh, week, everyone. Hello, faded mates. My name is Darcy, and the book that blooded me was Pirate's Princess by Constance O'Banion. It came out in 1989 when I was 15. When I was a little kid, I loved books, you know, like bedtime Dr. Seuss type stories. And then as I got older, somehow I just kind of got lost. I know there are books out there for older children and preteens, but I just couldn't find them. Then my brother started to encourage me to get back into reading, and he gave me a couple books. They were The Hobbit and Pet Cemetery, So, you know, very different from romance, and they really weren't my cup of tea. So one day, Mall was my friends, and we just wandered into the bookstore, and I picked up this book. I have no idea what drew me to it, or, you know, maybe I just saw Romancing the Stone. Maybe I had a surge of hormones and was drawn to the couple on the cover having sexy times. I, I don't know. But I bought it, and I just devoured it. Now, it's important to me not so much for the book itself, but for the fact that it was my gateway into romance. I haven't read it in years, and honestly, I don't remember it in great detail. I'm sure it's problematic because hello, 1980s. I do remember that they were foster siblings, so that can be kind of ish. And he's a ship's captain, not a pirate, no pirates in this book. But his family is successful in shipping, so, you know, that could also be an issue. And she's a lost princess from some made-up tropical kingdom island, despite the fact being a blonde white girl. So, you know, there's that, too. But it was full of adventure and romance, and I just loved it. And I started reading romance as fast as I could get my hands on them, and I haven't stopped since. So, thanks. Thanks.